Hi, welcome to the podcast, Ethics and Etiquette, a thought-provoking discussion about everyday dilemmas. I'm your host, Marna Ashburn. Kelly Halligan is with me. She's a wife, mother, and attorney. Hi, Kelly. Hi, Marna. Good morning, Mike. And also, Mike Derrick, a retired Army officer, combat vet, and father of four is here. Hi, Mike. Good morning, Marna. Good morning, Kelly. Our goal for this podcast is to offer you insights and perspectives on sticky situations that will help you scrutinize your choices and exercise your own ethical muscles. Today's topic is service animals, therapy dogs, and emotional support animals. These are three separate categories, by the way, but they often get lumped together, incorrectly, I might add. This subject is fresh on my mind after my Christmas air travel. For the first time, I saw many dogs on leashes in the airport and on the planes. These are not the small animals and carriers that can go under the seat. I have no problem with that. A friend of mine told me she saw a Great Dane on her flight, and I saw what looked like a pit bull mix on mine. Just so we're all on the same sheet of music, let's define these categories. A service animal is any dog that is individually trained to work or perform tasks for the benefit of an individual with a disability. We typically identify them with seeing eye dogs, but there are also hearing or signal dogs, dogs trained to detect the onset of psychiatric episodes and lessen their effects sensory signal dogs for persons with autism, and seizure response dogs. So that's the service animal category. A therapy dog is defined as a dog trained to provide affection and comfort to people in hospitals, retirement homes, nursing homes, schools, people with learning difficulties, and stressful situations such as disaster areas. They need to have the ability to work around other dogs while remaining free of aggression. I actually looked into uh, getting my dog certified as a therapy dog a couple years ago. The stipulations were so rigorous that I didn't think she could do it. There was a certification and a testing and all this stuff. So this is a pretty significant training as well. That's a therapy dog. The final category we're going to talk about today is emotional support animals. They provide companionship, relieve loneliness, and sometimes help with depression, anxiety, and certain phobias, but do not have special training to perform tasks that assist people with disabilities. They are not considered service animals under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Those are the three categories. Let's move on to the first scenario. I was at a resort in St. Petersburg, Florida in the fall, and I was waiting to check in behind a couple with a little Shih Tzu dog. These are the small lap dogs, no more than 10 pounds. The dog wore a service animal vest. I had my doubts it was a service dog. I asked the check-in clerk how much a pet fee was, and he said $75 a night. Then I said, what if it's a service dog? And then he said, oh, then there's no charge. So I found these uh, service dog vests on Amazon.com for dogs of all sizes. Anyone can buy one, and there's no documentation required. So my question is, how much is this being abused, and what are the repercussions, legal and otherwise, to our society? Mike? Well, thanks, Marna. Yeah, I think this obviously has a place for many people who have real disabilities, and dogs can be an absolute lifeline to allow them to better and more fully participate in life. Classic one we think of is the the blind person with a seeing eye dog. I mean, when we were growing up, that was kind of it, right? Right. You know, it was a seeing eye dog. And I was always amazed by what a seeing eye dog could do for its uh, owner. I had the chance to be close to that a couple different times, and I, I was stunned by the the relationship, the, the trusting relationship between a blind person and a seeing eye dog. But if you remember, I mean, that was with a harness arrangement where there was a, a handle off the back where the dog 
even gave the slightest body movement, the person would feel it through the hand and they could be guided around an obstacle or they could come to a stop. So that was my sort of framework. And you're right, I've seen this this proliferation in recent years of this whole service dog issue and presence in life. And so I have a story to share with you that was the first one which really alerted me to the abuse of this whole issue. And Kathy and I were out hiking in the Rockies. We were in the 10th Mountain Hut system, and we were going hut to hut. So we were carrying our gear and staying in these remote huts each night. And we got into a hut, and we were all by ourselves. We made our dinner and got all settled. And just at nightfall, um, this group begins to come in. And first there's like three or four of them, and then there's some more, and by then it's dark, and they're missing people, and everybody's in a bit of a panic because we're at 11,000 feet in the Rockies, and it's snowing outside. They're all college students, and all of a sudden, there's this dog running around the hut, and dogs are strictly forbidden in this hut system. And I go, hey, you know, um, interesting. What you, you got a dog with you? And the guy turns to me and goes, yeah, it's a service animal. And uh, I go, service animal? Really? You know, which one of you is disabled? Uh, because these were all... <laughs> They're hiking in the Rockies. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're out there. We're really in it. And uh, he looks at me and he goes, well, I think it's somebody coming up who's not here yet. I go, oh, okay. So this was the first time I had personal contact with a dog that was clearly not a service animal but was being advertised as such. So let me ask you this, Mike. Yeah. You know these service animals you see, working police dogs, you see them at the airport and places... They are so well-behaved. They're so under control. Was this dog under control? Absolutely not. It was all over the hut. It was up on the, the chairs and on the, you know, you sleep on these benches, which are all like around the living room area. And it was up in people's sleeping bags. And I'm going, yeah, oh, hell of a service animal here. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I suddenly, that was probably six, seven years ago, I suddenly became aware of this. And then I've seen this go on and on. So Minnesota and Arizona just passed laws which say that if you misrepresent, let's call it, isn't that like kind of a legal word, Kelly? You yeah. know, if you misre- misrepresent your dog as a service animal, you are liable for a significant fine. I think we're going to see this tighten up a little bit. I hope so. I hope more states do that. I found out you're allowed to ask two questions. Uh, I guess I'm speaking of, uh, you know, restaurants and hotels and the hut to hut thing. Two questions ascertaining whether it's a service dog. The first is, is this a trained service animal? And the second one is, what service does it provide? Right. Yeah. What tasks does it perform? The tricky part with this is, There's federal law, and then there's also state laws. So, you know, like Mike just alluded to, Minnesota and Arizona, what you're referring to, Marna, is the Americans with Disabilities Act, which is what requires these public places to allow service animals on site, and they're prohibited from charging fees. In your scenario, I think the hotel kind of fell down on the job a little bit, and it's probably a lack of training. And everyone is so sensitive to going awry of federal law or treating somebody with a disability improperly. But it would have been totally appropriate for the person, you know, checking in the couple with the shih tzu or however you say it to say, hey, like you said, is this a service animal? What task does it perform? 
you are not permitted to ask about the person's disability or demand any kind of certification or proof of animal training or anything like that. But that would have been appropriate to do because, unfortunately, a lot of people are doing this just to save money. They are. Um, And and to be able to bring them into places, hotels and trains and things like that. Right, where where pets sometimes are prohibited. Uh, But You know, I really focused on federal law in looking at this, but also I looked at Virginia where I'm licensed, and Virginia has a law similar to Arizona and Minnesota, which says that if you fraudulently present an animal as, you know, fraudulent representation of a service dog or hearing dog is the name of the statute, you can be charged criminally. You know, it would be a class four misdemeanor, uh, which there's no jail time possible, but you could receive a fine. And it's sad that the states have had to take these actions and spend time on this, but it's necessary because people are abusing it, and that just hurts everybody, particularly the disabled, right? It it does. I read an account online of a a woman who has a dog who helps her because she's hard of hearing, and she's come under a lot more scrutiny now because there's been such abuse of the service animal designation, and it's making her life very hard. And she's, she's a bona fide service dog owner. Right. And when you when you look at the ADA, really service animals can only be dogs. There's rare exceptions for miniature horses, which is kind of interesting. And additionally, service dogs, I had no idea. But because of the extensive training they receive, very few of them advance and succeed and are able to become service dogs. And the training runs between fifteen and $25,000. So for somebody disabled to afford a service dog, they often have to rely on their health insurance to assist. Yes, and some services do provide the dogs free of charge. A good friend of mine raises service dogs for the first year of their lives. She fosters them, and she has authorization to take them in public places, public transportation, things like that, so they can be socialized. Because a a big part of this is them being able to live and exist under stress without becoming aggressive or worked up. So it is a lot of work, and she's been the recipient of two dogs who can't make it through the training. They just, you know, they're not qualified to be service animals. I think they have to have a a certain disposition. You know, not every dog has that disposition, which is, you know, they, they really do have to have sort of a chill personality and yet be motivated and want to work and want to help. Right, perform a service. So I'm hoping that we will see a crackdown on the um, abuse of this service dog thing for the benefit of the people who genuinely are service animal owners. And the other thing is, I think you're right, Kelly, definitely more training and education needs to happen on the part of hotels and restaurants to question, you know, whether these are actual bona fide service animals within the context of the Americans with Disabilities Act and all that. I think that's a key point. Before today, Marna, I didn't even realize the distinctions between the two different, three different groups, actually. So uh, there's a lot to learn for folks out there, especially those who somehow are in contact with this thing. You know, it reminds me of a conversation we've had on the podcast before, which is uh, handicap stickers in automobiles or handicap placards and the abuse of those and how they often are, you know, they're a ticket to a privilege which many people aren't deserving of. And I think the same principle applies here with animals. I agree. Stick with us. There's more to come after the break. Welcome back. Here's another scenario for you about service dogs. 
Last year, we were dining at a very nice Italian restaurant, and a man came into the restaurant with his German Shepherd. The dog had a rope tied to his collar or leash and no vest or special harness. They were in the restaurant for a long time, and after they left, I asked the server about bringing animals into the restaurants. The owner then came over to talk to us. He said, by law, people are allowed to bring service animals into restaurants, and the restaurant personnel are not allowed to question if they're service animals and not allowed to ask for any documentation or certification of any sort. When the owner told us this, my mom said, well, I will be calling the city council about this. But like I said in the last segment, I've since learned there are two questions that restaurant personnel can ask, which is, is the dog required because of a disability, and what task has the dog been trained to perform? Now, personally, it seemed to me like it was obvious. This guy, he was using a rope for a leash. I mean, if it was a service animal, certainly they would look more official, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, I I don't think it makes any sense. I mean, I think you have to look at the ADA, which you just described, and and ask those questions. But additionally, state law provides information, support, and instruction as to how these situations should be handled. And part of me wonders if this guy was just not being forthright with you all. For example, in Virginia, it requires that service dogs be identified in specific ways. A guide dog has to be in a harness. A hearing dog has to be on a blaze orange leash. A service dog must be in a backpack, harness, or vest that identifies it as a trained service dog. So I don't understand what's going on. And I would go so far as to say that this guy is putting his establishment at risk because if that dog does anything on site, it's on him. It's on the restaurant, number one. And number two is I wonder about, I don't know a lot about restaurants, but inspections and keeping their inspection up to date and licensure, et cetera. I would think having an animal wandering around the premises, you know, without any legal basis is an issue. They're going head to head with the health department right there. This was in New Mexico. And I think possibly it was in that the owner misunderstood the service dog requirements of the state and of the U.S. Just a misinterpretation of it or a misunderstanding of it. Yeah, I mean, that's a serious misunderstanding. Yeah. I mean, I, I love German shepherds, but I mean, that's an issue. Yeah, Kelly makes a great point about the liability. I mean, it's it's one thing if there was a, a shih tzu in that restaurant with a rope tied around its neck. It's an entirely different thing if there's a German shepherd or some other big dog. Yeah. I think I'm properly cautious whenever I see a big dog. I think that that restaurant owner or manager or whoever was in charge that night really uh, missed the mark on that one. And I I would hope that this whole, it's not just the law, it's the application of the law that these dogs must be identified with some sort of official uniform, if you will that they, you know, we all can come to recognize, just like the little blue and white handicap placards which people hang from their rearview mirrors. Those are pretty standard now. There may be some variations, but they all look more or less the same. The same thing should be applied to service animals. Yeah, and it goes without saying, people will still be able to purchase the service dog vests on Amazon.com. So there will be some abuse of the system. But you're right. Proper identification is a start. Yeah, and asking the questions. And the other thing is, under the ADA, a service animal can be excluded from a public place if it poses a direct threat to health and safety, or if it's like aggressively barking and snapping at customers, 
The animal can also be excluded if it's not housebroken or if it's out of control. You know, the owner wasn't really right saying, I have to accept it no matter what. He could have politely said, you know, you, you don't appear to have the proper markings. I'm concerned about health and safety. I need to ask you to leave. Or ask the questions that he can ask. Yeah, it all comes down to was the restaurant making money? You know, <laughs> did this guy need to fill seats that night? Did this party come in with a dog that was, you know, 12 people? Um, no, he didn't. Okay. <laughs> I, I suspect that this restaurant owner just felt like his hands are tied as far as confronting people on whether it's a service animal. It's an education thing. It's a training thing, as Kelly said. Yeah, I think part of the solution here also is going to come from people who have disabilities. I know it's coming out of the veteran community now because whenever this is abused, those people who really need the animals, they're losing access, if you will. They're losing the benefit that they're, they, they truly need. And so there's a lot of pushback now from those communities that actually need the service animals, which I think is a good thing. I agree. Yeah, me too. Because something needs to be done about it. As a society, we need to address this. We've got one more scenario after the break. Stick with us. Welcome back for our final scenario. At the airport and in airplanes over the holidays, I saw many little dogs in carriers. Okay, no problem. The airlines allow this, as long as they fit under the seat in front of you. I also saw a dog who looked like a pit bull mix on a leash with a choke collar. Not in a carrier, obviously. The dog and his owner were on my flight from Dallas to El Paso. While waiting at the very crowded baggage claim, I saw this dog lunge at another dog who was passing. The owner managed to keep the dog under control, but this illustrates something important. Service dogs and therapy dogs are trained animals and have to pass rigorous standards to earn their titles. They are conditioned to behave well under stressful conditions, like in an airport and around other dogs. An emotional support animal or a fake service animal does not receive this training. This can create an unpredictable and perhaps dangerous situation. This emotional support animal designation, in my opinion, is where most of the misuse and abuse is happening and is giving the service animals and the therapy dogs an unfair reputation as well. So I went online to see if I could get a designation for my yellow lab, Opal, to be my emotional support animal, and I think I probably can. All you have to do is fill out a questionnaire and pay to get either a housing letter or a travel letter, or I could get the combo pack for the bargain price of $189. It's the most popular plan, and I can also set it up to auto-renew. There was no examination or in-person session required. It was all done online. The questions included, do you experience anxiety, sadness, or depression? How long do the symptoms last? Do you have panic attacks? In the past 90 days, how often have you been bothered by emotions from a traumatic event? Have you experienced any of the following symptoms in the past six months, including fatigue, restlessness, changes in sleep, lack of motivation, weight loss or gain. Okay, so that sounds like the human condition to me. Yeah, I'd have long... to answer yes to every single one of those questions, Marna. I, you know, I don't want to put too much of myself out there on this podcast, but I have two very old elderly dogs that are, are not a threat to anybody because they sleep all day. I might just have to be, make them emotional support animals. It's easily done. I'll yeah. send you the link. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what's happening. Um, people are easily getting these letters from yeah. healthcare providers and then being able to bring their dogs, their Great Danes, their pit bull mixes on the airplanes as emotional so, support animals. So back to your Dallas to El Paso flight, was the dog wearing any sort of designation? No, he was not. And is that 
typically a requirement for support animals, not service animals? I haven't seen anything about vests or anything for emotional support animals. They do require documentation, that letter right. that I was right. telling you from a yeah. health care provider. Yeah, I think that's another, you know, I hate to see more regulations and rules, but if people are going to abuse this and they really need a emotional support animal, I think that's something we can we should look at. You know, they should have to have a designation of some sort. could be really simple. I do think the airlines have a lot of discretion when it comes to these emotional support animals. The Air Carrier Access Act, ACAA, was passed in 1986, and the purpose of it was to allow passengers with disabilities, you know, flying to avoid discrimination. And it, in some ways, addresses the issue of of service animals and also emotional support animals. But again, it's ultimately up to the airline, and the airline is responsible for everybody's all guest safety. So, you know, the ACAA goes through what a service animal is, what an emotional support animal is, what's required to fly uh, with either a service animal or an emotional support animal. And as I said, they do have a lot of discretion. You know, service animals should be either cats or dogs. Obviously, under federal law, they can only be dogs or, in rare cases, the miniature horses. And then, you know, there are certain, I guess I'd say, points that have to be met or standards that have to be met. You know, the airlines do not have to accept rodents, reptiles, spiders, or ferrets. And boy, there's some funny stories out there. I guess they're not that funny. Emotional support squirrels and peacocks. Yeah, I mean, seriously, I, I read an article about Spirit Airlines and Pebbles the hamster. Oh, jeez. Um, yeah, this this young woman wanted to, you know, fly with her emotional support hamster. And the hamster brought her great comfort and was very loving. And she was told she could bring the hamster on the plane. She had the little carrier. She did everything she was supposed to. Got to the gate, and it was no go. Um, and she just was beside herself. And, you know, for a couple of hours, was wandering around. They, were gonna, they gave her a later flight, didn't know what to do. And I guess one of the um, airline folks suggested, look, if you really got to get in the plane, maybe you should just, you know, let the hamster go or flush it down the toilet. Um, oh, jeez. Yeah. Oh, so that no. traumatized her? <laughs> yes. And so she felt she had no choice but to flush the hamster down the toilet. And now she's contemplating oh, a lawsuit. Oh. And she felt she had to come forward and tell her story because there had been, and this was like in, in early 2018, I believe, because there had been a lot of negative publicity about an emotional support peacock being denied entry to a United Airlines flight. And so she just wanted to differentiate her situation. Did you say that she went through all the requirements to get it approved and everything, or did she just... Well, she, and again, I'm, I'm relying on her statements. <laughs> she says she called the airlines in advance, explained the situation, told them about Pebbles, and she was told that there was no issue. She could come on board. But when she got to the gate, and Spirit admitted that they had given her improper guidance... <laughs> verbally over the phone. But when she got to the gate, they said, we don't take rodents. Sorry. We feel there's diseases they carry. And that's what happened there. But Poor Pebbles. I know. <laughs> Pebbles is... I'm feeling very sad hamster, about this. In hamster heaven. Yeah. I mean, uh, but they can be, again, for the Air Carrier Access Act, I would say the standards are not as rigorous as they are under the ADA or certainly under Virginia law. You can provide for a service animal. You can provide you know, just believable assurances about what service the animal provides. If it has a harness or tags stating that they are a service dog, which obviously wasn't the case with Pebbles or the Peacock, you could have documentation from a medical professional 
stating that you need the services of the animal, or you can demonstrate the animal's well-trained. And then when you get into emotional support or psychiatric support animals, the requirements are similar. Generally, the letter that you described, Marna, with hopefully the recognized DSM. The diagnostic assessment. Code. That's yep. what that is. And, and disabilities can include depression, PTSD, bipolar disorder, and those kinds of things. Generally, you want to bring documentation of your animal's current immunizations and vet records. And then there are exceptions. Like what I can't figure out, some of the examples you gave is under the ACAA, the exceptions are if an animal's too large or heavy, if it's disruptive or aggressive or not well-trained or unsanitary. And then also there's just two more things. And if it's an international flight, and the country of destination, you know, won't allow dogs through customs, you know, the airline just declines to have the pet on board or, or whatever type of pet it is, a dog, cat, whatever. Um, and then for long flights, more than eight hours, the airline has the right to say no because of the concern about sanitation. Now, Mike, you've had experience transporting pets internationally, haven't you? Actually, no. We've never done that. We always had our pets within the continental United States. But I remember when we were in Hawaii, it was very traumatic for families because dogs and cats, and those are the only two I I remember, were put into quarantine for a matter of months in Hawaii. Hawaii is very, very concerned about the importation of uh, elements and diseases and animals that uh, somehow will harm the islands. And so it was a big, big deal. And they had a dedicated state kennel, and you would go see your dog every day. But it was just part of the the process of moving to Hawaii was having to put your animal in quarantine. And then, of course, that affects your schedule because, you know, these soldiers couldn't be, like, deployed somewhere or sent on temporary duty because they had to go every day and see their animal. I don't know if that still exists, but Hawaii is very, very careful about that because they've had some bad experiences with importation of not only pest animals and invasive plant species, but also disease. Interesting. Kelly, I did read on some of the airlines, by the way, if you're going to be transporting your pet or emotional support animal, I urge you to read your particular airline's restrictions and requirements because I noticed that they vary widely from airline to airline in terms of fees and what documentation you need to have and whether you need to register your animal ahead of time because there's a limit on the number of pets that can be on one particular airplane. Definitely read up. Yeah, but I would say it is not legal to charge under the ACAA for a service or emotional support animal. Emotional support animals are covered under that? Are you sure? That's what my reading shows Hmm. under the ACAA. They're free if they qualify as an emotional support animal under the Act. All right, that's that's the key. I imagine we're going to see some more standardization and enforcement across the industry starting soon, I hope, because this is being so abused. Right. I mean, for an animal to qualify as an emotional support animal under the Act, the airline can legally ask that the individual provide documentation and or 48 hours notice of the support animal boarding the plane. And, you know, they can require that documentation from a medical professional, you know, as well as the immunizations. So that, that's a pretty, I think, significant burden. You know, I guess if you're going to go to the trouble to pay for it online, etc. But you're, you're, it's supposed to be a licensed medical professional and that they're 
they're providing information, and their statement is supposed to say that the passenger is under their care. Well, that would clear up a lot of the confusion, because right now I think it's an area rife with abuse. I think back to our travel episode and and how we've all talked about the way in which on commercial airlines now, you are packed into a really small space, which is designed for someone who is six feet or less. So adding an animal to that mix really is, it's not just an issue for the airline safety of the airline safety of the aircraft. It's an issue for everybody around them. Yeah, absolutely. But ultimately, I will say when it when it comes to flying, it is on the airline. They are responsible for everyone's safety. So sometimes they have to make those tough decisions. And if people don't meet the requirements, you know, they have to turn them back with their animals. Now, these emotional support animals are supposed to lay at the feet of the person who brought them on, and they're not allowed to exceed the footprint of the seat. I wonder how a Great Dane or this pit bull mix managed <laughs> to sit and not exceed the footprint of the seat. Right. It makes no sense. And when's the last time you've been on a popular route in this country on an airplane where you've had an empty seat beside you? Right. So that does speak to the comfort of other passengers as well. If you're ever in a situation where there's a large dog at your feet and it's not yours, it's certainly within your rights to bring it to the attention of the flight attendant. You're entitled to your own foot space. I see so many instances where I wonder how is this allowed to happen? I think we're just experiencing uh, some turmoil until we get all the standards and standardization and the enforcement in place. And I hope it comes soon. Yeah, I do think some of it is training because I think the laws are pretty clear. It's just a matter of people being properly trained. You know, in summary, Marna and Mike, the only thing I would say is look at your state law in addition to the Americans with Disabilities Act because various states provide various laws. Some states are more strict and conservative when it comes to emotional support animals. I think everybody's pretty consistent when it comes to service dogs or service animals. So really take some time. It doesn't take that long and become familiar with your state laws. As far as housing is concerned, that's really dictated by the Fair Housing Act and that prohibits discrimination in rental housing accommodations. And that can apply to service dogs and emotional support animals if necessary for a person with a disability related to a need for an animal. So if you can demonstrate that you need that animal, whether it be a service animal or an emotional support animal, you are permitted under federal law to have that animal, even at a rental property that prohibits pets. Additionally, you cannot be charged. And I've also heard of college students being able to bring their emotional support animal into the dorms and live with them in the dorms, wow. also being abused. Okay. Yeah, wow. Yeah, I can see. I can see some teasing going on about that. Yeah, oh my. And then what about a classroom? You know, you're a teacher. Maybe, you know, think about allergies. If somebody in yeah. the class is allergic. And some people are deathly afraid of big dogs, too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, in closing, I want to go over something that Kelly touched on, which is JetBlue's got a new policy on emotional support animals. They would like to remind you that cats, dogs, and miniature horses are the only emotional support animals allowed on flights. They never accept the following as service, emotional support, or psychiatric service animals as they pose unavoidable safety and health concerns. These include animals with tusks, hedgehogs, ferrets, insects, rodents, snakes, spiders, sugar gliders. I had to look that up it's a type of possum, and reptiles. Service animals other than cats, dogs, and miniature horses will be considered for transport on a case-by-case basis. So if you are expecting to bring your wild boar, your walrus, your rhino, or your elephant as an emotional support animal, 
Sorry, you can't do it on JetBlue. <laughs> yeah, and I'm really hoping if I fly JetBlue, the guy next to me doesn't have a small emotional support horse. <laughs> How big are I'm, those? <laughs> I'm just trying to visualize this, you know. How big are these animals? And horses just aren't like dogs. They don't curl up and take a three-hour nap. A little different. Okay, I'm fully informed now. Thank you very much, everybody. I've been lucky. I mean, I've never had a, any type of animal around me on a flight. Now, I'm sure that I've said that my next flight, I'll, I'll have some huge Right, dog I haven't either. What about you? Do you have an experience to share or a question to ask about our topic today? You can do both at our website, www.ethicsandetiquette.com. We're also on Instagram, at Ethics Etiquette. If you want to support what we're doing, recommend our podcast to your friends and family and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. For Kelly Halligan-Zimmerman and Mike Derrick, I'm Marna Ashburn, and this is Ethics and Etiquette, a thought-provoking dialogue about everyday dilemmas. Thanks for being with us this week. We'll be back next week for an all-new episode. See you then.